I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. We are looking together at this letter written by Simon Peter to churches and clusters of Christians scattered across the vast region of Asia Minor, or what we today know as Turkey. As we saw in the section leading up to this one, many of these followers of Jesus that Peter is writing to are facing emotional and mental distress because of their faith. Many are transplants and as such are strangers to their environment. They are also strangers because their faith puts them morally and culturally at odds with the people among whom they are working and living. So we are discovering how to make an impact for God even in the midst of hostile settings. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. The brain is wired to detect patterns. It's one of the primary ways that we learn. By seeing patterns, we're able to make connections We combine information. We link experiences. We are led to ask creative questions. The brain is always trying to make sense of what's going on around us. And it does this by primarily noticing patterns. However, because we do naturally desire to see order and meaning, there's a tendency to see patterns that aren't actually there. And there's a name for this. This is called apophonia, finding patterns where none exist. There is, however, a pattern for the Christian life. We discover it here in our text this morning. Up until now, if you recall, Peter's been speaking of the past, future, and present benefits of salvation that come to every believer through faith in Jesus Christ. Peter has also tried to show how the trials that we face fit into what God is doing. Now Peter turns to demonstrate how this salvation that we experience was foretold, present distresses included. What was spoken of in times past is currently in the process of being fulfilled. We are in what has been called the already but not yet. God is already doing something, but he has not yet done all that he will do. This already, in which we find ourselves today as the church, was declared in the past by the prophets. Why is this important? Well, for one, Peter is determined to show how what was revealed in the Old Testament is carried over into our present experience of God's work in our lives. There's this ongoing debate about the relevance of the Old Testament Scriptures to the Christian life. 
Our text lays the groundwork for how Peter is going to apply the Old Testament scriptures to the Christian in the remainder of this letter. But it also, and most importantly, gives us the pattern for our own lives as followers of Jesus. So first of all, we'll consider seeking an answer. Seeking an answer. One thing is abundantly clear. What we experience as Christians far surpasses anything the prophets of old experienced. Something interesting happens to people when they become parents. Suddenly, your happiness, your goals, your desires are not the most important things anymore. You are concerned now for the happiness, goals, and desires of your child. You will sacrifice for their success in life. Your satisfaction is suddenly much more dependent on the success of your child or your children. Now, this can be taken to an unhealthy degree. Parents should not live their lives to their children. But we all understand the healthy desire of parents longing to see their children do well. This is a lot like the Old Testament prophets. We read in verse 10 that they prophesied of the grace that would come to you. And by extension to us, the prophets who spoke God's message to the people of their day also understood that they were speaking about the future. The primary role of a prophet, the reason that God raised up a particular person was to speak into the spiritual need of the moment. Often the Lord used prophets to try to call his people back to himself when they had gone astray. For this reason, there was always an immediate message that the prophet's audience needed to hear. There was an immediate application of the message. Again, the prophet's role was to speak into the spiritual need of the moment. This is why when you read Old Testament books like Isaiah or Jeremiah, even some of the minor prophets like Hosea or Joel, it's important to understand what was taking place in Israel in that prophet's lifetime. He was speaking to a particular situation, delivering a particular message that God wanted his people in that moment to hear. But there was also more than this immediate message. You see, when we read prophecy in the Old Testament, there is very often a double fulfillment. And this simply means that there was an immediate fulfillment of the prophet's words and there will be a future fulfillment of the prophet's words. Let me give you an example. This is not only important for understanding our text today, but it's important for understanding how prophecy in the Bible works. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 is a familiar prophecy to most of us. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son. In the immediate context, the prophet Isaiah is talking to a fearful king Ahaz. This was after the time that Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, Judah in the south. And Israel in the north, King Ahaz was the king of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel 
had teamed up with the Amorites and they were together threatening to invade Judah. And Isaiah was telling King Ahaz of Judah that their efforts will not be successful. And so the prophet goes on to tell the king to ask for a sign. Ahaz refuses to do so. And so Isaiah gives him one. And the sign is what I read in chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah. There will be a young lady who is a virgin at the time of the prophecy. She will become pregnant. In a few years after the boy that she births grows into a child, both Israel and the Amorites will be defeated. Judah will be saved. Immediate fulfillment. Then, of course, the future fulfillment is what we're familiar with. A virgin will conceive without the contribution of a man. She will bear a son. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. This is the Old Testament prophecy concerning the virgin birth. The birth of the Messiah, Jesus, is the future fulfillment of Isaiah's words, even though for us it is now a past event. The prophets knew that many of the things the Lord laid on their hearts to speak pertained to the often distant future. They knew they were making predictions, specifically predictions related to the promised Messiah, the chosen one of God. And so we read in verse 10, they made careful searches and inquiries. This phrase, it tells us that these Old Testament prophets were not just pondering or wondering or reflecting on their prophecies. They were doing more. They were diligently seeking out the meaning of their messages. They were searching like you would search in your house or car or office or in your yard for your lost wallet. You don't want to have to cancel all your cards. You don't want to have to go to the hassle of getting a new driver's license. You don't want to lose the cash that's tucked away in your wallet. And so what do you do? You turn your house upside down. You search your car for your wallet like you're motivated. These prophets, they were searching their own words. They were searching the words of other prophets. They were searching the scripture that they possessed up until that time, trying to figure out one thing. They each had one goal. They were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. The reason the prophecy we possess in the Old Testament is the very Word of God is because the Spirit of God is the ultimate author. In receiving their messages through the Holy Spirit, this is what did not happen. The prophets, they did not receive the messages that we now have in our Bibles by going into some kind of a trance and by doing something like automatic writing. That did not happen. The heavens did not open and drop pages into their laps. God did not pour information directly into their heads. The Holy Spirit did not overpower their bodies like they were possessed, and they did not know what they were writing. The Word of God was given to us through them in such a way that each prophet was inspired to use his own mind, his own words, coupled with his own personality to write down what the Lord laid on his heart. Each prophet was active and engaged in the speaking and in the writing. God's message was expressed through individual people. Yet through it all, the Holy Spirit was also active and engaged. The Spirit of God was the source, the motivation, 
the guide of their inspiration. And because the prophets understood this, they knew there was more to what they spoke and wrote than what they even grasped. They diligently searched for something specific. The Holy Spirit moved within them to motivate them in this search. So hear this, the same Holy Spirit who guided the prophets to write about the Christ is the same Spirit driving them to seek information about His future coming. The Spirit was the one propelling them to try to discern as much as they could about Him. This offers us strong encouragement when it comes to studying the Bible. The same Spirit who inspired the words you were reading is the same Spirit who implants in you the desire to go deeper in your reading. Not only this, but it is also the Holy Spirit who leads you into understanding. This is why the Bible is a living word. We can never separate the words themselves from the Spirit who inspired those words. The Spirit drives you to understand those words, gives you understanding of those words, and then gives you the strength to obey them. A living word. Now, you do not merely read the Bible to gain information. Yes, what you read is truth, and we surely want to know truth over lies. You do not read only to understand. Yes, we must diligently study for understanding. But that's not all you're doing. You do not even read only to obey. Of course, obedience is crucial when it comes to spiritual growth, but obedience is not the end game. You read and you understand and you obey in order to encounter God. This is why I preach from God's word, so that you will have an encounter with God. This is why you read your Bible, why you should be studying your Bible, so that you will encounter God. I keep this quote from A.W. Tozer tucked away in my Bible. I use it as a reminder as to what I am doing when I opened the word and began to read. This is what Tozer wrote. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself and the core and center of their hearts. The prophets, they were spe uh, seeking specific answers. Specifically, who the promised Messiah will be and when he will come. We're privileged to know these answers. The promised Messiah is Jesus, and he showed up as a baby in Bethlehem a little over 2,000 years ago. Not only do we know these answers, but we are presently receiving the benefits of knowing these answers. Remember, it's not merely the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. It's the implications of who he is and what he came to accomplish upon your life today. What are those implications? In their seeking, the prophets discovered something that is crucial for the Christian experience today, for you and me. They discovered a pattern. And it, it is a pattern that guides us in the Christian life. So let's consider discovering a pattern. Discovering a pattern. Peter is writing to Christians who are facing hostile circumstances. For 
a multitude of reasons. They're feeling social pressure due to their faith. Their trials, like ours, are known by God and are being used by God. The Lord is interested that the sincerity and strength of our faith in Jesus make an impact on those around us. This is exactly what Jesus did during his earthly ministry. But Jesus is more than an example. He offers a pattern for spiritual life. You see, there is something specifically the Holy Spirit within the prophets was guiding them to discover. It was not only the person and the time, but what that person in that time would accomplish. This is what we're told in verse 11. What the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Here it is, a summary of the work of Jesus Christ. Sufferings and glories. This is the grace these prophets foretold, not even fully understanding what their words meant. They knew the Messiah would suffer, but they did not understand how. They knew he would receive glory, but they did not understand the glory of the resurrection would follow the suffering of the cross. But we do. We do. First of all, let us not limit the word prophets in verse 10 only to the books of the prophets in the Old Testament. The word prophets was also used broadly to refer to the whole Old Testament. There are places that speak to the suffering of the coming Messiah. Isaiah 53 talks of the suffering servant of God. Then there are numerous other places, and the Psalms especially, that speak of the resurrection of the Messiah, the sufferings of Christ, and the glories to follow, or what we call the gospel. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes the work of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Notice that all of these things, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, are according to the Scriptures. Paul is speaking of the Old Testament writings, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets, they only saw dimly what we see clearly. Jesus Christ died the death that you should have died so that you might receive eternal life through His resurrection. Trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross and in His resurrection is the basis for the salvation of every Christian. You have peace with God, if you have peace with God, because and only because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on your behalf. Only Jesus Christ could do what he did. All that remains for the individual is to decide if he or she will receive what Jesus accomplished for them. The cross and the resurrection, they were hinted at all over the Old Testament. But of course, the prophets, they could not comprehend a form of execution that had not even been invented yet. Much less could they put together the pieces that the sinless Son of God would be put to death for the sins of the world. And then because they had no conception of a Messiah who would die a substitutionary death, 
they did not grasp that it would be necessary for him to rise from the dead. Perhaps we can look at the various prophecies and we can see how it all fits together. But we have the benefit of hindsight. It's easy to know what the puzzle is supposed to be when you're staring at the picture on top of the box. But it's nearly impossible to tell what it is when all you see are a bunch of scattered pieces on the table. This should be a cautionary lesson for us when it comes to trying to understand the end times. There are all sorts of theories about how the book of Revelation is going to play out. There are all sorts of Christians who are convinced that they have it pretty much figured out. But if the Spirit of God was prompting the Old Testament prophets to seek for the person and time of Christ, and they still did not really understand, why should we expect it to be crystal clear to us when we are studying prophecies that are still in the future? By all means, seek and search and study and pray but do not convince yourself that you have it all figured out. Remember, you are the one looking at the puzzle pieces when it comes to the second coming of Christ. Leave room for some surprise. The Lord is much more pleased with your humility and my humility than with our certainty. It was not only the prophecies, however, that the prophets of old considered. They also looked at the Old Testament characters, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David. If you study the lives of each of the major figures in the Old Testament, you will discover something fascinating. They all followed a certain pattern. Their lives traced a consistent trajectory. And I'm sure by now you can guess what that pattern is. They all pass through suffering in order to be glorified. Abraham waited over 20 years before the promised son, Isaac, was born. Jacob suffered severe discipline from the Lord at the hands of his father-in-law before he returned to Canaan with his family. Joseph, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was accused of rape in Egypt. He was imprisoned for seven years before he was made the prime minister. Moses tended sheep in the desert for 40 years after having to flee Egypt. Tending those sheep for 40 years before he finally led the Israelites out of Egypt. David fled for his life from Saul and he lived in caves before he finally became king of Israel. Suffering and then glory. This is the pattern that God uses in dealing with his people. This is the pattern because Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of that suffering and glory. Every Old Testament character in some way prefigured or foreshadowed Christ. The Old Testament prophets, they strived to understand. We see the suffering and the glory all over the pages of Scripture. But we must not stop there. We must ask what this means for us. Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering. He's encouraging them to remain steadfast. You see, it's easy 
when the trials are intense, to despair. It's easy to throw your hands up and to wonder if it's all worth it. Peter would say, yes, yes it is. It's worth it. You see, the glory follows the suffering. It is the pattern established by God. We do not suffer in order to earn or obtain salvation. For the Christian peace with God was secured by Jesus through his death and resurrection. But we are certainly called to follow the pattern. God will lead us through suffering to glory. It is inescapable. It's part of the process. The suffering is what prepares you for the glory. The suffering teaches you the lessons that you apply on the other end. The suffering makes you a useful tool in the hands of God. I'm not talking about the glory of heaven here, though that is surely to come for the Christian. I'm talking about the glory in this life. How God uses your suffering for His glory. We can say, therefore, that suffering is the trials, the hardships, the distressing moments. The glory, the glories that follow are how God uses these to strengthen your faith and to impact others. Peter is linking what the Old Testament prophets wondered about the New Testament experience for the Christian. We don't want lives that are free from suffering. If we had that, so would our lives be free from glory. But it's in the trials that God prepares you to be used by Him. It's in the trials that He reveals Himself to you so that you in turn can reveal Him to the world around you. It's in the suffering that you experience the work of the cross. Only then will you experience the work of resurrection. Why is this the pattern? I mean, after all, we know that suffering was not what God intended. Suffering only entered the world because of sin. And then Jesus went to the cross to suffer and to die for your sins and mine. But for the Christian, now we know the suffering that comes to us is not a result of our sins. Sure, if you sin as a Christian, you'll suffer the consequences. But the penalty of sin, the eternal penalty of sin over you is broken. It's broken in Christ. You will not suffer eternally for your sins because Jesus suffered in your place. You suffer now because God uses suffering to bring you to glory. Paul expresses the same idea in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11. We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. The death of Jesus on the cross was a one-time event. The work of Jesus through the cross is ongoing. This is the suffering that you experience as a Christian. Your position in Christ is secure. Your progress in Christ is determined by the extent you cooperate with the cross. We see this pattern embedded in nature itself. 
what happens every fall? The leaves begin to die, and then they fall off the tree. The tree enters into a season of suffering that lasts all the way through winter. And in the spring, we see a resurrection of life. The tree produces new leaves, and the flowers, they begin to bloom. Their glory is only revealed after the suffering they endured. And so it is with the people of God. Why is Peter concerned with us grasping this pattern of suffering and glory? Well, let me draw your attention to the last verse. The last verse, verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1 to answer that. We see here an appreciation of the plan. Appreciating the plan. The spirit within the prophets revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things. The prophets sensed that the Messiah would suffer and be glorified. This they diligently sought to understand. And even though they were only given glimpses into the suffering and glories to follow, something was revealed in greater clarity to them. They were shown by the Holy Spirit that they were serving you. The time of verse 11 is not only when Jesus walked the earth as a man, but also the time of the church, the church age that was brought into being, that church brought into being the people of God because of his suffering and glory. The time which the prophets of old sought to understand are the times in which we now live. I want you to let that sink in. The things told of the prophets were not primarily for them. They were for us. We think that our suffering is to be avoided. We look down upon it. We just want it to be over. But the prophets, they saw suffering for what it is, a partaking in the life of Jesus. The resurrection of glory always follows the death you experience in the trial. Our appreciation of something rises when someone else appreciates it. Maybe this has happened to you. Maybe this has happened with your car or with your truck. You drive your vehicle every day. It becomes so familiar to you that you don't appreciate it like you did on the day that you bought it. And then someone comes along and they talk about how much they love your car. They shower praises on it. And suddenly you see your vehicle, you see what you possess in a fresh light. You are once again aware of the blessing of having a vehicle that you enjoy driving. It took someone else's appreciation to remind you of the value of what you already possess. The prophets spent their whole lives in ministries and service to others, namely us, the church. They understood somehow that their messages were building up to the great unveiling of what we know as the gospel. They had a role to play. And they played it. And because they were faithful in their generations, we received the benefits. Those who went before us, they spent lifetimes longing to understand what we know with certainty. It's all too easy to take for granted what's been revealed to us in this age that was not revealed to them. Many Christians think of the gospel the suffering and glory of Jesus Christ 
as something just to be believed at one point in their lives. And after they believed it, they then move on to trying to live by biblical principles in their own strength. The mindset goes something like this. The gospel is the starting point, but the rest of the Christian life is up to us to figure out. The gospel, however, is not only the starting point, it is what you must continue to hold fast until the finish line. This is not original to me, but well put. I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. I am more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. Let me say that again. I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. I am more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. When you become a Christian, it's because you realize your sinfulness and your need. That's the first part. But you continue as a Christian by realizing that you are not only forgiven through Jesus' death, you are accepted and loved through His resurrection. The suffering and glory should never grow old or seem irrelevant. The gospel is always relevant. You never outgrow it. In fact, spiritual progress comes through continuing to believe the gospel. One preacher put it like this. We are saved by believing the gospel. And then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. This is what the prophets longed to understand and what we are beyond privileged to experience. But there is something else. Verse 12, these are things into which angels long to look. This word translated look, it means more than simply a passing glance. This means that spiritual beings, they peer intently at the wonder of the gospel as it is expressed through the people of God. The verb here, look, is also present tense. They did not just look then, angels are still looking now. We tend to assume that heavenly beings who serve the Lord around His throne and who do His bidding, that they already knew and understood the plan of God and Jesus' suffering and glory. But they were waiting with the prophets for everything to unfold as well. Maybe angels knew more, but they are still eagerly peering at the unfolding story. It's not just that angels waited in expectation for the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended on the first Christians. They are still gazing in wonder and awe at how the Lord is working out His gospel in the lives of you and me. The church and its people are a continual source of amazement for heavenly beings. We get it backwards. We can get so consumed with focusing on angels, but the Bible never draws our attention to them. They're simply mentioned in passing when necessary. They are sent to serve the people of God. They are ministering spirits. We should focus on what angels focus on, the gospel as it's worked out in the lives of God's people. This is where the real wonder lies. Specifically, 
It is the current suffering of Christians that angels find fascinating. They long to look into these things. How is the Lord going to use this trial in the life of that Christian? How are all these seasons of suffering and sorrow going to produce glory in his life or in her life? How will this moment of hardship drive him to trust God more deeply and impact others because of it? The wonder is not the prophets who predicted the suffering and the glories. The wonder is not even the heavenly beings who strain their eyes to see what God is up to. The wonder is that you and I are receiving the benefits of God's great salvation, the undeserved favor of God poured out upon our lives because of what Jesus Christ accomplished through His suffering and glory. You can be assured that your suffering in this moment will end in glory. You can be assured of that if you are a Christian because that is the pattern set by Jesus Christ. Because that is the pattern that he set, that is the pattern Jesus produces in the lives of those who choose to put their trust in him. So don't flee from what angels gaze intently upon. Let the grace of God work itself out in your life through the suffering and right into the glory. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, in whatever ways we grow cold to the gospel, whatever ways we see it as irrelevant to our lives today, whatever ways we fail to gaze with wonder upon what you continually accomplish in our lives because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection, we ask for your forgiveness. And we pray that you would open our eyes to, to see what angels long to peer into, how the sorrow and the suffering and the trials and the distresses are all being used by you for our good and for the good of others to impact them, to reveal your love. Help us to cooperate with what you're doing, Lord, in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.